Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello and welcome once more to the podcast. It's been a while since we've done one of these, Pete. Jeez, the podcast that never ends. We've been on our holidays. Yeah, you had a great time, didn't you? I had a fantastic time. I would heartily recommend uh, York and Durham to anybody. Nice walks, largely downhill. Yes, that, you were uncomplaining throughout. I was uncomplaining the whole time. You were. Now, uh, what are we doing today then? Well, today, Pete, we're going to continue to tell the story of the Battle of the Somme. And today, it's the Battle for Thiepval Ridge, which uh, I think is September 1916. Yeah, it's, it starts on 26th of September. Uh, and it's it's one of the most awful battles in, in British military history. I mean, there are a lot, and people always say these things. Uh, but it is a bad one. And... Uh, the, There'll be no funny accents and no humour much in this one. Uh, well, uh, there shouldn't be. If there is, I apologise in advance for any slippage. So how did we find ourselves here <laughs> that on, was the, on the 26th of September? <laughs> what led us here, Pete? What led us here? Well, uh, um, what, I don't know. It's just, it's just that they've been fighting all summer, edging their way forward in the south. They've, they've ground their way forward on the Posiers Ridge. Uh, and But it... it it, now it's the turn of the Reserve Army, later on the 5th Army, commanded by Sir Hubert Goff. Um, and Haig, but, but after the relative success of the Battle of Flair's Corselet, which we did, I think, in our last podcast, um, Haig was convinced the moment had come that the German reserves, uh, and, and if you like their resolve, their resolve to continue this and Verdun at the same time, they're finally failing, and he orders, uh, he orders Goff and Reserve Army to strike hard. At some, well, you'll recognise some of the original objectives of the 1st of July. So we're talking about Schwab and Redan. Now, what was that to the Germans? A fair punct. That's it. I thought I'd let you say that. Thanks, I always mate. think of Jack Sheldon when, because he's the one who first brought that concept firmly to our mind. Uh, and and Thiepval Ridge. So this is the original objectives uh, for the first of July, and they're, they're now going to try and get them. And what does Haig plan after he's got Thiepval Ridge? Well, once it's captured, he plans an advance towards Serre and pushing out from Beaumont Hamel. Now. There is an argument that Goff was too optimistic uh, and, and, and that he too was taken with the idea that uh, uh, the time had come to strike. 
So you're going to be Sir Hubert Goff, uh, General Sir Hubert Goff, uh, you're a, a commanding a reserve army. What have you got to say about it? The reserve army had not so far been in a position to attack on so broad a front or to deploy so many divisions. The front of attack was well supported by artillery and from many positions southwest and west of Thiepval, we swept the defenders in enfilade and exposed them to a heavy crossfire. Now, uh, this attack was going to be carried out on a front of some 6,000 yards. So notice again, we're, we're concentrating our attacks, uh, it, but it is still a wide front, but it's not as wide as we couldn't manage to do on the first day of the Somme. Uh, 6,000 yards and it was going to be done by a second corps. Who's in second corps? Quick chest. Uh, eight, well, second corps is the 18th and 11th divisions who are alongside the Canadian who are they? corps. That's the first and second Canadian divisions. The clue's in the word Canadian. Oh, yeah, I suppose it would be. Now, the artillery sport, would that be important, do you think? Oh, it's going to be crucial. And, and so they, they massed some 230 heavy guns and 570 field guns, and they're soon blazing away, but also being supplemented by the artillery further north which could strike deep into the rear of the German positions. That's because of the configuration of the, the front. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now, this is your point about you know the guns getting behind the lines, as it were, and that, that was done from the north. Now, There's the, something new, though. Well, not new, but the, there's, there's another... This Increasingly, as the war goes on, they add to the mix of weapons being used in an attack. Now, this, this is where... This is one of the most noticeable uses of the Vickers machine gun, that, that which by this time have been banded together to form a real punching power. So what are the, how do they supplement the artillery barrage? Well, they, they put a, a, a constant hosing stream of bullets, which rather bizarrely are directed into the air. Now, this is caref- like carefully... Like Robin. Yeah, this is carefully <laughs> calculated to fall back to earth... And, and, and in doing so, spattering across the German positions. Now, I'd never, ever thought about that. The idea is to fire, and it's things like points where, where communication trenches come out in the open ground. They could just about, it's place, it's that sort of thing you aim, and you just hose it with bullets falling out of the sky. Yeah, because what goes up must come down. It, well, usually, yeah. <laughs> well, it certainly did in Durham. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, so on the right of the front, the Canadian, the attack's going to go off at... Uh, 12.35, that's midday and a bit. Well just, done. Just checking. Uh, and the Canadians, uh, on the right, they'll push towards Corselet, uh, striking towards Zollern Trench and Zollern Redoubt. Uh, next to them, the 11th Division, uh, they're going to capture the ruins of Mouquet Farm. Haven't we heard that? We've heard that before, uh, haven't people we? have been capturing Mouquet Farm for, for, yeah, the Australians were battering their way towards there. The Mouquet Farm is a tremendous sticking point. Now, we're, we're going to concentrate on what the 18th Division uh, are doing, and they're attacking towards the Thiepfel Ridge and Chateau, with behind them the, uh, I think you describe it as grim fastness of Schwaben uh, Redoubt. The Schwerpunkt. The Schwerpunkt. Oh, Schwer. Now, the 54th Brigade was charged with taking Thiepfel itself. The 12th Middlesex and 11th Royal Fusiliers would lead the way with the 6th Northamptons coming up in reserve as required. Now, mm. when the orders are given to uh, an old friend of ours, Lieutenant Colonel Frank Maxwell, VC, of the 12th Middlesex... Now, he's the chap who was in Trones Wood. His, he was Trones in Trones Wood, Wood yes. Yeah. And, and I think we've mentioned him in a very recent podcast. We did. Now, he knew that all his accumulated military skills... <laughs> 
plus <laughs> a large slice of sheer good luck would be required if he and his men were to have any chance of surviving their uh, their daunting task. Daunting. And you are going to be, uh, rather fittingly in my opinion, Lieutenant Colonel Frank Maxwell of the 12th Middlesex Regiment. Is he sort of lovable? He's exactly like you. Lovable. <laughs> July 1st was a playground compared to it, and the resistance small. I confess I hated the job from the first. So many attempts had been made and so many failures that one knew it could only be a tough thing to take on, and I hadn't personally any particular hopes of accomplishing it. More especially as a distance to be covered, nearly one mile was enormous for these, under these attacks under any circumstances and under the special one of a country absolutely torn with shell, shell fire for three months. It was, I considered, an impossibility. Now, what does a British officer do when he's ordered to accompany something that's impossible? Does he, uh, does he whine or complain or does he just get on with it? He gets on with it. And, and I think that's an important point. Arguably, sometimes they shouldn't. But in this particular case, I think they should, and he thought so too. So what the, the artillery crash out uh, for the attack that's going to go in at twelve thirty-five? Concentrated barrage, um, and, and it, it shells are slathered all over the German trenches. And you're going to be Private uh, Reginald Emmett of the Eleventh Royal Fusiliers, one of the two battalions leading the assault. Shells crashed over and around our trenches. Machine guns chattered as their fire swept to and fro across our path as we stumbled forward through no man's land, doubled up in the faint hope of dodging bullets. We'd been told not to bunch up together as that would be an easy target, so from the first each man was on his own. Here and there were men tangled up in barbed wire, many dead. The ground was uphill and we did not have far to go to reach the German front line, smashed by our artillery, where we found a few Germans. Blimey. Uh, so what happens when it, what, what happens in these circumstances? Well, the surviving fusiliers, they take their awful vengeance and uh, they hunt down their quarry in a manner that uh, sort of combines a bloodlust with a, a murderous efficiency. Mm. And you're going to be Second Lieutenant George Cornerby, also of the 11th Royal Fusiliers. We met Bosch running about, scared out of their wits, like a crowd of rabbits diving for their holes. Men were rushing about unarmed, men were holding up their hands and yelling for mercy. Men were scuttling about everywhere, trying to get away from that born fighter, the Cockney. But they had very little chance. I had the pleasure of shooting four of them before I was wounded in the wrist. After this, everything seemed blurred. Hmm, mm, wow. Now, with the German first line successfully overrun, the men of the 11th Royal Fusiliers push further forward uh, and they move as fast as they can in the appalling conditions. Now, you're going to be uh, Private Emmett again, aren't you? And you're, you're heading for what room... There's not much left of it, is there, really? Uh, the, the ruins or the remnants or the dust of the uh, Tietval Chateau. We shot anything that moved and dragged ourselves out and onto the next trench. We'd been told to make for the ruins of a castle and dazed and exhausted as I was, I dragged myself to a little hill where there was a pile of stones, all that was left of the castle, I suppose. Here, the German machine gun fire became fiercer than ever, just sweeping above the ground. I threw myself into a shell hole and seizing my chance as the bullets whistled over my head, I slid from shell hole to shell hole into a third German trench where some of our boys were held up. Now, normally I would correct your pronunciation of the word castle, 
to cattle. <laughs> but uh, after our experiences in the north of England, uh, I'm sure you realise well. But this chap is a, a eleventh Rob Fuseley, so I think you've got. I think you've got it perfectly right, and I congratulate you on your ability to read even something as wrong as that right. Now at this point, they're told by an officer that they'd actually reached their objective. Emmett's company had been assigned to the role of mopping up the German dugouts and the wounded 2nd Lieutenant George Cornaby watched them in action. And you're once more going to be 2nd Lieutenant George Cornaby. I found myself in a shell hole with one of my men. Remember, he'd been wounded in the wrist. In the wrist, yeah. Uh, With one of my men who was also wounded. We patched each other up and then went on. I have visions of excited men tearing after the Bosch, visions of men sitting over dugout entrances, waiting to shoot the first Bosch that appeared. Sounds almost like good fun. It's not, is it? And and you're going to be Private Reginald Emmett of the 11th Royal Fusiliers, same regiment, who's one of these men. It may be... I mean, the great thing is Cornaby could have been looking at at you as, as Emmett. I started by shouting down, telling any Germans left to come up. If there was no response, I fired a few shots and then threw a bomb down. We got quite a few. Some came up holding their hands up and shouting, Kamerad! Others held up photographs of their wives and children. We had to be very quick on them, for some still had a bit of fight left in them and pulled out revolvers, but we soon knocked them off. The survivors were sent back down the line in charge of a corporal, but many got shot on the way, for many of our boys were mad with what they had gone through and the strain of it all, and just shot anything in a German uniform. We'll come back to this, because I, I know uh, Maxwell mentions it later on. Now, Private, uh, F- Private Fuller, he's the 8th Suffolk. Now, he's in the neighbouring 53rd uh, Brigade, and he saw uh, just something awful as they were hunting down the any resisting Germans and anybody who wasn't resisting. And you're going to be, uh, pri- you are Private Sydney Fuller. One was lying buried almost to the neck by a shell which had dropped near, but still alive. I shall never forget the expression on this man's face. Ghastly white, his eyes staring with terror, unable to move while our chaps threw bombs past him down the dugout stairs and the enemy inside threw their bombs out. What do you think it was like for that bloke? Horrific. Uh, it, it's beyond... Uh beyond comprehension. This is why we use oral history and, and personal experience uh, accounts. Now, the 12th Middlesex, they're fighting their way through the ruins of the Thierval Chateau. We were, uh, uh, and uh, uh, Colonel Frank Maxwell makes that his battle headquarters. Uh, what do you think his situation is? Well, his, his responsibilities are, are growing all the time and they're fast expanding as both Colonel Carr of the 11th Royal Fusiliers and Colonel Ripley of the 6th Northamptons, they were both knocked out in the fighting. So the simply irrepressible Colonel Maxwell just takes over effective command of all three battalions. Are you saying I'm irrepressible? I'm saying, well, I can't possibly say that, mostly because I can't pronounce it. So you are once more going to be Lieutenant Colonel Frank Maxwell of the 12th Middlesex Regiment. It was an extraordinarily difficult battle to fight, owing to every landmark, such as a map shows, being obliterated. Absolutely and totally. The ground was, of course, a limit itself, and progress over it like nothing imaginable. The enemy quite determined to keep us out, as they had so many times before. And I must say that they fought most stubbornly and bravely. Probably not more than 300 to 500 put their hands up. They took it out of us badly, but we did ditto. And I have no shame in saying so. As every German should, in my opinion, be exterminated, I don't know that we took one, he means prisoner. I have not seen a man or officer yet who did 
Anyway, so he's saying that his battalion, 12th Middlesex, didn't take prisoners. Um, what what do you think this is? Well, well it, how do you feel about this, Gary? Where are we? Well, it, this is the uh, the old cruelty of the, the the medieval wars, isn't it? Where you you fight to the end and and you literally fought to your end. There was no mercy given or to be had at the last. So, if you wanted to surrender, you had to surrender before yeah. it was serious. <laughs> yeah, you can't surrender having you know. Uh, shot, shot everybody down, everybody in, no down in front land. of you and then say, oh, I surrender now. Uh, and Because it wouldn't be accepted. Now, small isolated parties of soldiers from both the 11th Royal Fusiliers and the 12th Middlesex Regiment uh, battalions, they fought their way down these trenches that filled the village area. That's the village of Tiatval itself. Yeah, now I bombs presume. are the main weapon, uh, followed by the quick and deadly rush with the bayonet. Well, we talked about this, where you throw... In fact, you once participated in a famous demonstration of this, where you you throw the bomb round the corner of the trench, it goes off, you wait for the fragments to settle, which is a matter of a second, and then rush round and bayonet any survivors, and then it repeats itself. This is dreadful, murderous fighting, isn't it? It is. Now, it, it's incredibly difficult to determine what's going on, and and it's, it's even more difficult trying to keep General Ivor Max at 18th Division headquarters abreast of the situation. He's the commander of the 18th Division, isn't he? He is. And, you know, you're now once more going to be Lieutenant Colonel Frank Maxwell to explain some of the difficulties. Perhaps the most trying business is to keep your generals informed of how things are going. It is extraordinarily difficult. Uh, for on a field like that at Thiapval, the telephone lines don't remain uncut by shells for more than five minutes. And yet they must know things, of course, and must get their information by lamp or runner. By lamp, it is laborious uh, for, for no answer to say message or rather word received is, is possible in case the enemy should see the reply in lamp and put the artillery on its position. Um, I, I didn't read that well, but you'll get the Makes idea. Sense. If the message is sent by, I understand the next bit. If the message is sent by runner, it means long distances on form. By day, the runner is usually killed or wounded. By night, he gets lost. <laughs> No, I do understand that. Well, but what I take from that whole thing is he's pointing out the practical difficulties, which are often, why don't the generals do this, that and the other? It's because they don't know what's happened. Because the officers at the front cannot get word back. Uh, there's just no means. And it's it's quite, it's, it, it's just a fact of life, isn't it? Now, what's the situation by the time? So they started at half past 12, midday-ish. Um, what what happens by the time night fell? Well, by the time night falls, they they hold the entire village except for the northwest corner, where a strong German machine gun post still holds out. So, what's the priority now? What do they have to do? You've got to consolidate. It's all important because uh, what Why? do the Why? Germans do? They counterattack, Gary, they and you're going to be Pri- Private Reginald Emmett t- talking about how they did it. We started to get the trench ready to resist building up the parapet facing the other way round, because obviously it's going to be facing the wrong way. This meant heaving the German dead bodies over the top, a gruesome job, which covered us with blood. This done, we waited through the night. Some explored the dugouts, which were well supplied with drink and cigars and came up wearing German helmets. Those who had them divided up their rations and tried to get a little sleep through sheer exhaustion. The counter-attack never came. That's interesting. I mean, it's a sign of the strain on the Germans. Uh, now, where am I? Well, Colonel Maxwell, that's me. I'm assuming that's who you mean. I mean, I've taken on the role very seriously <laughs> now, Gary. Uh, he spent the night at uh, the Thiepfel Chateau. 
Uh, and here I am. Uh, I, I find Maxwell an absolutely fascinating character because there's, there's definitely two or three sides to him, some of which are, are admirable and two or three which are quite sharp. Uh, there's a Patton-esque, if you know what I mean by Patton-esque. No. Uh, you know General Patton from the Second World War? Oh, Patton-esque. Mm-hmm. I thought you meant Patton as in a Patton. It's the southern-northern divider pronunciation there, I suspect. Anyway, this is what uh, Colonel Maxwell says. He's in the uh, he's in the uh, dungeons, I like to call it, but uh, basement of the Tiatval Chateau. I had a safe place in a pile of ruins which managed to ward off shells and all the other unpleasant things of a modern battle. It was a very busy night for me, uh, though, and not unmixed with anxiety. In, in fact, very much the contrary. Uh, so he, well, the, these, these words are actually part of a letter that, uh, that he wrote home. And uh, he was being observed uh, by a slightly awed, wounded officer. You made the point earlier about, you know, uh, Cornaby could be looking at Emmett. He was actually looking at Colonel Frank Maxwell. And uh, uh, he was experiencing the full force of his um, forceful and slightly irascible personality for the first time. Hang and on. you're going you to saying be... saying I'm forceful and slightly irascible? I am very irascible. I wouldn't use the word slightly, no. Yeah, no, very. Now... Once more, you're going to be Second Lieutenant George Cornaby of the 11th Royal Fusiliers. Who wasn't, of course, in his in, in uh, Maxwell's battalion. So this will be the first time he'd probably seen him. For some hours during the night, Colonel Maxwell was writing diligently, page after page. It was supposed popularly to be a letter to his wife, and appears to have been so. Shells were passing over and dropping all the time, and one runner, who had the wind up, gave a groan every time one came. Suddenly, Maxwell got up from his writing, saying, I can't stand this any longer. Send that man here. He then told everyone to stand in line, said, I'll give him the first kick, then the rest of you pass him along. And the runner was passed out into the dark. In other words, he formed a line, they all booted the bloke, passed him out. Is that reasonable or rational behaviour by an officer? Yeah. (laughs) I, I experience that often. No, it's not. But it is. It shows what sort of a man he was. It, it's quite interesting. Now, what's what's the overall situation on the nightfall on the twenty sixth of September? We've looked at the, you know, but what's happening? Well, basically, the the reserve army are, are, are simply exhausted. The and, assault battalions, are, yeah, yeah, and the reserve battalions they're they're moved forward at this point, but in doing so, they're threatened by the vicious German counter bombardment. That's that's falling all across the newly captured trenches. So this is quite. So what's happening is that uh, the Germans are, haven't counterattacked yet, but what they are doing is blasting hell out of out of what you know what's going on. And of course, they were in their own trenches. They knew exactly the range to them. They had it taped to the inch, I suppose. Now you're going to be Private Thomas Jennings, First Sixth Royal Berkshire Regiment. He's one of the the uh, the reserve battalions uh, that moved up, I presume. I, I can't check that, but I presume. So you're going to read this. Dusk was creeping up fast, and then came the biggest barrage Jerry ever sent over, and well, we knew it. We rushed about in all directions and dived into the old trenches that were knee-deep in oozy, greasy mud, running from bay to bay to escape the jagged metal showering down from the HE, heavy explosives. It fell like oh. white. It fell like white hot cinders around us, and sizzled in the wet earth of the trench. Hi. This went on throughout the hours of darkness until dawn came, when the enemy gunners ceased firing as they didn't want to be spotted by our aircraft. 
What a sight met our gaze in daylight. The trench must have been a terrible hot spot during the past few weeks, for buried in its walls were dozens of bodies, both British and German, rotting in the wet earth. A khaki-clad leg or arm protruded from the sides, and a couple of jerrys wrapped in blankets, complete with jackboots, were acting as silent sentinels either side of a dugout. During the night, my mates and I had been close companions to all these corpses, the lull before the storm, as we called the silence that daylight brought, enabled us to leave the mortuary and look further afield. More horrors were brought to our eyes. What a sight! A huge crater about 50 yards away. Its occupants were the dead of our soldiers who made the advance on the 1st of July, nearly three months before. They lay, sat or reclined in all positions, skeletons covered with the greenish skin and flesh of decomposition. One that I noticed in particular was lying on his back, his belly a moving mass of maggots. I was about to retreat to the trench when our captain came across to reprimand us for being away from our positions. Then he ordered us to search the bodies for their personal belongings and pay books. This helped to clear up the missing, believed killed problem. We found out that they were from the West Country, the Dorsets in fact, it wasn't a very pleasant task. Now, this is a horrific uh, idea or quote, and, 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 and the state, it's just awful. Anyway, uh, Jennings must have been, he must have been in some sort of state of shock at all this. Uh, now, he, he's a Lewis gun, uh, he's got a Lewis gun team. They're given a dugout for the night, and uh, <laughs> just more, there's more fun in there, isn't there? Once more, I'm going to be Private Thomas Jennings. With the light of a candle, we looked round our new quarters. A German officer, bare from the waist up, was lying on a bunk with a mass of bandages around his middle. He'd died from a severe wound. Another jerry was lying dead on the floor. Rather reluctant to haul them up the twenty-odd steps, we covered them with blankets and promptly forgot about them. It was a case of out of sight, out of mind. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, that that is what soldiers are like as well, and that I've read lots of quotes uh, and, and things of that nature. Now, uh, next morning, uh, the, the, there's more more to remind them of the fighting that had been going on there for the last three months, and you're again going to be uh, Private Thomas Jennings. We investigated all the trench from one end to the other. In the next bay were three jerrys kneeling in a pool of blood. Their tunics were blood red instead of field grey. Their faces from the forehead to the chin were missing, completely blasted away. But why were they kneeling? Had they been at prayer? Going in the other direction, we came across a strange sight. There were perhaps a dozen or more jerrys on steps that appeared to be emerging from a dugout. They were as dead as doormats, and I was prompted to give the first one a push and send them all tumbling to the bottom. Well, I didn't succumb to the temptation. Well, that... This gives you an idea. This is uh, the battlefield. This is what people imagine the First World War to be like all the time. It is like that on this occasion and in this place. Uh, you can over-exaggerate this sort of uh, sort of death and destruction everywhere, but in this particular case, it's definitely true, isn't it? Now, that same night, the 7th Bedfordshire and Hertfordshire Regiment, uh, they, they infiltrated their way forward to, to relieve the, 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 uh, the people who captured Tiapfel. And that they're, what they're getting ready to do, what would you say they're, they're going to do next? Well, they're getting ready to spring forward to clear what remains northwest of the Teepthal village before dawn on the morning of the 27th. Now, amongst them 
was Lieutenant Tom Adlam, who was temporarily in command of a company. Rapid so promotion. That's some promotion, isn't it? At the Colonel's briefing, he was given his deceptively simple instructions. Under the cover of darkness, they were to break into the German trench and then bomb their way along to establish strong outposts on the trenches leading directly into the heart of the threatening Schwaben Redoubt, slightly to the north of the village. So the idea is that this is going to, to establish a base from which to attack the Schwaben Redoubt itself. Now I'm going to be Lieutenant Tom Adlam, and this I'm going to. I'm going, there's going to be a lot of this, so I'll just introduce it. This is taken from an interview carried out by the Imperial War Museum. Uh, when when Adlam was not that much older than I am now, he's about 70, 70, between 70 and 75. It was recorded in the 70s. Uh, and uh, it is an amazing, it's a the very rare thing, and you must note this, Gary, it's a very rare thing. It's a VC, a, Vic, a Victoria Cross winner, talking in detail about what how he won it and how he felt and what he was what was going on in his head and so I, I there's a lot of this but i think it's worthwhile we've got a lot of quotes from him and i'm just gathering my thoughts ready to go so lieutenant tom adlam seventh beds and hearts the guides that were taking us up all got lost except in my company i thought yes it would be us <laughs> luckily just before we started the attack my company commander came and took over it had taken us so he's replaced his company commander. It had taken us so long to get into position that it was quite daylight. I knew that we weren't supposed to do this in daylight, but he said, Well, get along. And we got over. I was lucky because the part my platoon was opposite was only about a hundred yards. Then the trench that's the German trench they were attacking swung back forty five degrees. So if they were further along they'd have had a lot further to go. Uh, we, we only got a certain way, then the machine gun started and we all went into the shell holes. No. Wow. Now, Lieutenant Tom Adlam, certainly no ordinary young man, he, he wasn't prepared to just sit around and wait for something to happen. He was going to make things happen and trust to his own luck. Now, he's a, man, he's a bloke who's going to make his, make the difference. The, the modern army call it men who make the difference, or women, sorry. that, that But people who make the difference in action. And you're once more going to be Lieutenant Tom Adlam. I thought, we've got to get in this trench somehow or other. What are we going to do about it? And instead of doing nothing, he said this. So I went crawling along from shell hole to shell hole till I came to the officer in charge of the next platoon. I said, what do you think about it, father? We always called him Father. That was his nickname. I don't know who he was, but that was his Father. He said, I'm going to wait here till it gets dark, then crawl back. We can't go forward. And this, Adam's having none of this. He says, I said, well, I think we can. Where, where I am, I'm not more than 50 yards from the trench, and I think I can get in. He shook hands with me solemnly and said, goodbye, old man. <laughs> I said, don't be such a damn fool. I'll get back all right. I'm quite sure I can get back. It didn't worry me. It seemed, of course, I was abnormal at the time. I didn't feel that there was any danger at all at that moment. I got back to my platoon. I went across to them and said, you all got your, bo you all got a bomb. We always take two bombs with us. And I said, well, get one in your hand, pull out the pin. Now hold it tight. And as soon as I yell charge, stand up and run two or three yards, throw your bomb. And I think we'll get into that trench. There's practically no wire in front of it. Now, I would notice the word practically here, speaking as Peter Hart and not as Adlam. I would also notice if you tripped and fell with this grenade. Yeah. Now, his men 
they could easily have taken a really jaundiced view. By jaundiced, do you mean disaffected? Disaffected, because, you know, Adlam's zeal and determination to get forward at all costs means that their lives are at stake, but they knew that they had no real say in the matter. So, you know, Adlam's powers of leadership and his blowtorch style of courage seem to have inspired them forward. Because they do go with him. And, they, and it, yeah, so I'm going to be Adlam again. They went like a bomb. They really did. I think that's wonderfully. <laughs> they all up and ran and we got into our little bit of trench. There was no trench to the right of us. That's the German trench. They'd all been blown away. We were in this narrow bit of trench. And by this time, we had no bombs. Fantastic. Uh, he didn't say that. I said that. Sorry. <laughs> there were bags of German bombs like condensed milk cans on top of a stick. On them were written five sex. Ooh, I wonder if sex is German for seconds. Um, you had to unscrew the bottom and a little toggle ran out. You pulled that and you threw it. I'd noticed that the Germans were throwing them at us. Seen them coming over, wobbling as they did, pitching a, a bit short of me, luckily. I could count up to nearly three before the band came. I experimented on one. <laughs> I pulled the string and took a chance, counted one, two, three. My servant beside me was looking over the trench and he said, Bloody good shot, sir. Hit him on the chest. Hit the bugger. The Germans found their own bombs coming back at them. I think it rather put the wind up them. There were bags of them in the trenches. In the trench, sorry. With my few men behind me, I got them all to pick up bombs. I dumped all my equipment, and I love this touch the next bit, except my prismatic compass. I thought, I bought that myself and I don't want to lose it. So the government can buy you stuff, get rid of it. Prismatic, I bought that, I'm keeping that. Anyway, I kept that over my shoulder. The men brought these armfuls of bong bombs along and I just went gaily along, throwing bombs. I counted every time I threw, one, two, three, and the bomb went. It was most effective. Then we got close to where the machine gun was and it was zipping. I don't think we've had this mentioned before, but that's the nature of all history. Uh, and it was zipping about. We didn't look up above. I got a whole lot of bombs ready and I started throwing them as fast as I could. My servant, who was popping up every now and again, said, They're going, sir. They're going. I yelled, Run in, chaps. Come on. We just charged up the trench like a load of mad things. Luckily, they were running. We never caught them, but we drove them out. Then we came to another machine gun post. They were keeping down the other people who had the longer journey to go over. That's the, So this is he's moving towards the people that, that could, hadn't got any further so far. Um, in the end, with these few men I had, we got right to our objective that the battalion was down to do. So he got the whole lot, the whole battalion objective. We, it's amazing. Uh, anyway, he carries on. They came up and cleared up. They took nearly a hundred prisoners out of their dugouts. It was lucky they didn't come up behind us, <laughs> but they were more frightened than we were. I was frightened, I don't mind telling you. Then the CO, commanding officer, saw two trenches leading up towards Schwab and Redoubt. And he said, it would be a good idea to get an advance post up there. They started off and a man got killed straight away. I said, oh, damn it, let me go. I can do it. I've done the rest of it. I can do this bit. So I went on. I bombed up the trench, put some men to look after that, bombed along this one there. It wasn't much of a trench at all, nearly blown to pieces. That was an easy job. Then they got to the other corner, bombed them out of there, bombed back down the way it took more prisoners we took more prisoners down there in dugouts so we had our two advanced posts out towards the enemy and this must be why so many vcs get killed they do one amazing thing and then they're almost overconfident and he just takes on 
another job that could have got him killed. But it, he was incredibly lucky. Would you not say he was as brave as he was? He was as lucky as anything. Yeah, yeah, and and even long after the event, you know, his his words are conjuring up some idea of the desperate, mad excitement of the trench fight, exhilaration. Uh, yeah, it, it overcomes any idea of self preservation or, or basic common, common sense. sense. Yeah, <laughs> so so as to what was and was not possible, so he didn't. It didn't dawn on him that anything was not possible and although he probably barely noticed it at the time in his uh, frenzy should we call it a berserker attack adlam receives a wound in the leg it's only a minor one but it's still it's still a wound isn't it yeah it's not that serious but so what the, would keep him going well sheer pumping adrenaline um now as you mentioned he would be awarded a vc for the, the, his desperate courage that morning and you're going to be once more and I like the fact you're doing all the work, Lieutenant Tom Adlam. Well, this is him thinking about what he'd done. He says this, You did a job out there, and I never realised that there was anything unusual about it. There was a job to be done, and you just got on and did it. I was more frightened going up to the trenches, sitting, waiting to start. I was very frightened then, very frightened indeed. But when we got going, (laughs) you've got a group of men with you. You're in charge of them. We were taught we had to be an example to our men and that if we went forward, they'd go with you, you see. And you sort of lose your sense of fear thinking about other people. Wow, wow. Wow. Now, it's only another couple of days later. He's in the thick of the action again. Does, hang on. Does that... Uh, now, I know what he feels like in a sense because I'm now feeling... Does that mean I've got a load more quotes to read? Yes. <laughs> well, if I'm objecting to reading a load, load more quotes, what must it have been like for him after this to now have to risk his life again? So what's happening this time? Well, he's in the thick of the action again when the 18th Division is ordered to take the Schwaben Redoubt itself. So the 53rd and 54th Brigades are once more earmarked for the assault supported by the reserve battalions of the 55th Brigade. Now, amongst the troops lined up for the attack was Lieutenant Tom Adlam again of the 7th Bedford. Hang on, I'm wounded. Oh, and he'd suffered very little reaction to his uh, slight leg So this is more a nick than anything. I can't say it would probably put you or me... Yeah, Although but you were you wouldn't have complained, but you... he's able to stay with his unit. So, so once more, he's suffering the tension of waiting to go into the attack. And perhaps, oh, you know, I'm wondering what you think he's thinking. What would you think? Well, even he was aware that he'd used a fair amount of uh, normal reserves of luck, uh, and a couple of days before at Thief Fell. So, as zero hour was set for thirteen hundred, that's one o'clock, Pete. Thanks. He and his men had plenty of time for waiting around and thinking about it. And once more, you are going to be, and I love this, Lieutenant Tom Adlam for several more quotes. Now, I'd like people to, before I go on, while I remember, this is available on the War Museum. You can hear the whole interview on the War Museum webpage. I can't remember. If you type in Tom Adlam, A-D-L-A-M, and IWM, you should get to it. You can listen to the whole thing uh, in his voice. Uh, it's an important resource. The War Museum's an amazing institution. I can't remember who did the interview. It wasn't me. Uh, it was done in the 70s. Anyway, this is what Tom has to say. Imagine he's ready to go over the top. We know he'll be nervous. He said this. They put us in the last line of attack and the other people in front, three companies. We sat waiting until one o'clock, but we got into position at 12. We sat down waiting. We, we sort of chatted away to keep our spirits up. Waiting for an hour for an attack is not 
a very pleasant thing. There was a nasty smell about there, and of course we all suggested somebody had had an accident. What, what does he mean, Gary? We know what he means. But it wasn't. It was a dead body, I think. We joked in that way, in a very crude manner, just to keep them uh, alive and going. Uh, now, this is uh, we've, we've written a book about this sort of thing, haven't we? It's, it's a book that tries to be respectful, but looks at what it's like for men in action. And how did we sum it up? What's the title of the book? Well, the title of the book is rather right because it's called Laugh or Cry, because sometimes you would just have to choose one or the other. Yeah, I'd have gone for crying, uh, but these men have got a bit more about them, haven't they? They crack a joke. Who's farted? <laughs> you, you can just imagine the lads, can't you? Mm. Anything to keep their minds off it. Anyway, who's next? Well, <laughs> when the artillery barrage opens up, it certainly seems to have done them justice. And the, the blasted earth of Schwaben Redoubt was that's... once more thoroughly rearranged. And Tom Adam comments about this. Then when the shells started, they put everything in. You'd never think anything could have lived at all in the Schwaben Redoubt. And the old earth piled up. We went forward and you'd see one lot going to trench and another line going into a trench. Three lines had all met up and mingled together. Some of them were killed, so they weren't as strong as when they went in. We caught up with them, our, our last lot. By this time, we got we got this close to the Charmin Redoubt. There was a huge shell crater, a mine crater, I think, because it was about 50 feet across. It was all lined with Germans popping away at us. So I got hold of the old bombs again and started trying to bomb them out. After a bit, we got them out of there and started charging up the trench, all my men coming on behind me very gallantly. We got right to within striking distance of the Schwaben Redoubt itself. Just at that moment, I got a bang in the arm and found I was bleeding. So being a bombing officer who could throw with both arms, I used my left arm for a while and I found I could bomb perfectly well with it as I could with my right. We went on for some time, holding on to this position and working our way up the trenches as far as we could. The men sort of lost or lost they, they sort of lose all control. There was a German soldier. He'd been wounded. He was in a bad way. He was just moaning. Mercy, camarade, mercy, camarade. And this fellow in front of me, one of the nicest men I had in my platoon, he said, Mercy, you bloody German. Take that. He pointed his rifle point blank at him just in front of me. But he jerked up and missed him. I gave him a shove from behind and said, Go on, he won't do any harm. Let's go and get a good one. And it was so funny, the fellow said to me afterwards, Sir, I I'm glad I missed him. It was just the heat of the moment, you see. Then my CO came up and said, You're hurt, Tom. I said, Only a snick in the arm. He said, Let's have a look at it. And he put a field dressing on it. He said, You go on back. You've done enough. So I sat down for a while. The fight went on. But what happened afterwards, whether they actually took the Schwab and redoubt, I don't know. I waited for some time and the CO said, well, you've got to go back. Take this batch of prisoners. I took about a dozen prisoners with me. They filed in front of me. I just my old gun and I walked back. And that was the war over for a bit for him. I don't know what happened to him now. I must look and listen to it again and find out. Um, so what's happening behind him? He doesn't know what happens. What happened? Well, behind him, the men of the 18th Division, they do sweep over the great German fortress. Uh, the Schwaben. The Schwaben. <laughs> The Schwaben Redoubt, yes. Yeah. Schwaben. Uh, you say? I'm sorry, go on. Schwaben Redoubt. No, Schwaben. Schwerpunkt. Schwerpunkt. 
Now, this is truly a ding-dong battle conducted in, in tight trenches. Battles raged over saps, corners, dugout entrances. But finally, as the 55th Brigade came up to throw themselves into the fray, the German garrison begins to give way. But what, the, you mean this, it, the resistance starts to fray? Away. Yeah, but the constant counterattacks meant that only on the 5th of October was the whole of the Schwaben Redoubt finally within the British Well, that's grip. days later, days of this fighting. Yeah, now the fighting, you know, it, it had a grim complexion of a, a true soldier's battle because the, the two sides, they, they're fighting tooth and claw for every single inch of the ground on Thiepval Ridge. The story doesn't ever seem to change. The place names change by hour by hour, but the essential plot remains the same. Another German redoubt has fallen. Another step to the British domination of Pozier Ridge and Tietval Spur. So what you're saying is that there's a clear pattern to the fighting at this stage. Um, yeah, it's fundamentally a battle of the artillery. Well, I think it is on the Western Front generally. Uh, it's the dominant force. And this is why the British, in the end, do well in the Great War at the end of the war, because the British artillery becomes the do- game's dominance. Uh, yeah, we could, the British can't advance without it. And the Germans, they can't defend without it. So the roar of the guns... Unceasing, Gary. It's going to grind away and erode the courage of all but the very bravest. Um, there's something else about the Somme. Um, th- this phase in particular of the Somme, we've looked at what a tragedy it is for the British Army at times. It is a terrible tragedy. And no one is gainsaying that. It's awful for the British Army. The- we've talked about the-, the losses on the 1st of July. We've talked about uh, the uh, the summer madness, you know, with some of the offense- uh, t- attacks in-, in July and August are just stupid. Uh, we've talked about the terrible fighting that the Reserve Army's had and-, and before then the Australians on this ridge. But the, the Somme's doing something else. What else is it doing? There, there are more than one party on the Somme. So it's it's becoming a mincing machine for the German army as well. Fresh divisions are being sent into action and then the British artillery are simply chewing them up over a period of days and spit them out at the end of it as mere shadows. So this is like almost like the... the, the, the it's a bit like the German plan for Verdun, Verdun, the alleged German plan for Verdun. It's a mincing machine that just brings in German divisions and spits them out, you're saying. Wow. Um, so, uh, um, well, we, uh, well, well, let's let's look at it. We, we've got one German quote for this. We, we should have had more. We, I've been lazy about putting a German quote in. But let's let's look at Herbert Salzburg. He's Sergeant Herbert Salzburg of the 63rd, that's Frankfurt, uh, Field Artillery Regiment. Now, um, he'd spent some time in St. Quentin while en route uh, to leave in Brussels. So, in a way, he's a, he's a bit of a sidewalk, but he just happens to see... Uh, what's happening uh, of the German army going in and coming out of the line of the Somme. And this next quote that you're going to read, Gary, gives us an idea of how the German army's been chewed up. In the two hours we had to wait there, a very large number of troops, some in column of route, moved through the town, coming from the Battle of the Somme, on their way to rest stations. They were ragged and filthy, with blunted nerves and indifferent expressions, while other troops, all fresh, clean and without a notion of what it was like, were pushing the other way towards the Somme to be sent straight into action. So they're pushing, you, you can see that, all fresh and go, go into action, two or three days in the line, and they're, they're unceasing roar of British artillery, the, the, the stresses of combat, the attacks, the counterattacks. attacks um, 
it just chews people up. So it's two sides. This is a battle of attrition. It's a terrible battle. And it's said that the German army leave the, the, their best, their best men, their best NCOs, some of their best officers on the, in, the gra- in the ground on the Somme. Um, is, does that mean it's all worthwhile? I don't know. Uh, I, I've never been able to decide. Uh, what I do know is it, 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 it's, um, the, the Somme is a terrible battle for both sides and it does erode the German army. Uh, now, what's happening? Well, just, just what do you think of, what 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 is this? That where well, this is, are we in the battle? Well, this now? is the decisive moment, isn't it? The the Germans are certainly staggering under the weight of the British attacks, and the wearing out battle reached its peak. But there is a question. The question is, would the Germans crack? Now that's what we have to address over the next few episodes. Uh, will they crack? Can they keep on sending reserves? Remember, they're fighting at Verdun. That's not going away. In fact, the French are beginning to counterattack properly at Verdun. The whole battle is boiling up. The Germans are fighting two of these battles. We're, the French are also attacking on the Somme. They're building up their attacks. We're, in a future episode, we'll be looking at the French on the Somme with David O'Mara. This is all boiling up to a crescendo. And the question is, it, does the war finish in 1916? Will the Germans crack? Is it the Great War, 1914-16? Well, I don't know, Peter. We're going to have to wait and see. Now, one other point we want to make is something about... about we've done... This, this episode has been a, 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 about a lot of personal experience. Why do we think that's important? Why do, why do we want them, less of, of, of you and me... Uh, well, the, the primary reason is you and me weren't there. So this is about what the, the lads thought... There and then, we we you've raised it earlier. We we had a a, a quote the other week where somebody looked and saw some tanks. Uh, I think it was the flares uh, episode, and and described thousands of tanks coming towards them. Now clearly there were not thousands of tanks, but that was his perspective, and he was there. So the the the, the beauty of all a uh, personal experience accounts, because it's not all oral history. It's personal experience, diaries, letters, all sorts of things. Is that they're not always accurate but they do give us a sense of what it was like and i think the quotes today have given us a very real feeling it's not all about r.i.p and feeling sad and and having almost a fake sort of sadness about the whole thing what this is about is learning what it was like appreciating what these men suffered and, and and why they suffered and how they suffered and what was going on and trying to gain an understanding of what was going on rather than just feeling sad about it. That's that uh, that's what I feel. What do you, what do you? Well, yeah, I would add to that, but it's also having an appreciation of where they believed they were having success and where they believed they were making a difference. Uh, because you know, very often we look at the Great War and particularly the Somme in a particular way, but there was success. Uh, and individuals on the ground were making a difference. Tom Adlam made a difference. Frank Maxwell made a difference at Trones Wood and yeah. po- probably at uh, at uh, Tiapfel as well. So th- this is, it's a it's a big picture, isn't it? We're, and it's too complicated. It's too complicated for us at times. Uh, it has to be said. And uh, in fact, it's much too complicated for us. Curly Whirly is too complicated for us. That's why we've stopped eating them. Well, fancy a curly whirly now. On that high not, note, I wish you hadn't mentioned that. Let's go and get a curly whirly. Cheers, Pete. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com. 
forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?